I used to think the goal was comfort. The goal was peace, to keep the negative stuff out of the room, to keep the pain out of the room, all that stuff. No, no. That's like keeping life out of the room. So no, no. I think it's much better. Yes. Let's turn down the noise with morphine to some degree so that we can maybe be a little more, more present. Sure. I'm all for symptom management to a point, but that's, that's step one. That's not the goal. Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. We explore the fields of neuroscience, integrative medicine, anthropology, optimal psychology, systems thinking, and existential risk. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights. What a welcome, BJ Miller, uh, MD, hospice, and palliative palliative care specialist who has, um, I think you've, you know, you're definitely one of the clearer voices advancing the conversation around rethinking our relationship to death and your beginner's guide to the end, uh, your TED talk that has had lots of views and, and clearly has struck a chord. Um, you know, welcome to Homegrown Humans. Uh, really hey, excited to explore this with you. And, and ideally, I mean, you know, just personally and sort of uh, and, and selfishly I, I i'm super psyched to get to explore a topic that most folks are squeamish about mm -hmm. right but we can actually explore the physical experience along with the metaphysical experiences mm -hmm. along with the physiological so so you know we can kind of start really just sort of taking you know death writ large Mm -hmm. across all categories of you know from the mythopoetic to to the to hospice um and just see what's what the first obvious question i had for you which was after uh reading in you know in your bio that you had borne witness to and and facilitated mm -hmm. the transition in over a thousand deaths mm -hmm. um what what is your perspective what is your experience uh mm -hmm. on on fundamentally, you know, one of the the great mysteries of mm. the human experience. So, as happens, maybe you know, as you get farther into a subject, I have felt this way towards tea. I have felt this way towards music, where the the pattern as you get into it, as you learn more, as you experience more, blah blah blah, you. I, I find myself getting very particular and wanting things a certain way and, and finding a way to love the subject by manipulating it and what, getting what you, very... What do you mean by that? That's a fascinating phrase. Well, by sort of taking death on... If death is something that happens to each of us, it's, it's, this, it's this wonderful mix of universal and totally particular. And so if I embrace the particular of it, and so I had my own relationship to it, it forced me to do things. It made me take time seriously. <laughs> it made me take, it made me let go of taking time seriously. It has this way of like compelling you and allowing you to forgive yourself at the end of the day, which I love. It's got both sides of just about every coin I can imagine. And wanting deaths for people that I work with, patients, families, to go a certain way, um, erring towards the peaceful, towards the sort of uh, closure, towards some some nice find a bow to put on it somehow, and mm -hmm. you know. <clears throat> but the farther I go along, um, and I think this is a good thing. I think this is a healthy thing, and I have, like I said, some comparisons in the rest of my life that we can talk about. 
But I find myself now after many years of this work, letting go of all sorts of projections, expectations, personal sort of stake in this thing, like, because the personal stake in this thing is pretty ego driven, is self driven, is there's a story to it. I'm, I'm much more interested in what's underneath the story, the preverbal stuff, the, and surfing it where it will take me in a way submitting to it rather than trying to make it bend to me is another way of putting it. And, and I have found so now where I am is death has arrived at this sort of mundane place that I think it deserves to be. You know, it is a, it, you could label it with any, just about any adjective, sacred, profound. Sure. It is those things too, because it's everything. Um, but it's also daily and humdrum and to be expected and probably not the end. In fact, we know it's not the end in some important ways. So, I, you know, as I come full circle, I'm much less particular about it. I'm much less shocked by it. Um, and I have it settled into a relationship like you might settle into an old friend or an old blanket or something that you know pretty well, even though you don't know it totally well. And that's compelling. <laughs> yeah, it's it's arrived at a, at a sort of mundane place for me, having toured the planet, toured the cosmos and toured the sacred. I am back to seeing maybe there's no difference between the sacred and mundane. Maybe it's all just one. And we keep trying to label it, tease it out, name it engineer it and there's plenty to say about that but for me personally sorry going on here jimmy but to answer your question for me what i have where i have arrived is essentially that it's just part of life it's like like a need for air or water or any other need or compulsion that we have it's on that sweet list of fundamental things that humans do um now so i don't mean to say it's boring it's an amazing subject it's just, I guess I've come to a place of some familiar, familiarity with it and I'm less shocked by it. Mm -hmm. But even as I say that, I want to just, I mean, we can open any of this stuff up, brother, of course. But <clears throat> I do think as, even as I say what this, make that statement, I am very much aware there's a little asterisk next to it, which is still death of, of me as a person is still an abstraction. As close as I've come to it in my own life, working with others in their death or my own brush with death. I don't, I'm very careful to remind myself that I don't ever really know this subject and I should not seduce myself into, while it may feel familiar to a point, it's just to a point. And so I leave a little reserve, like when I'm actually standing at the edge of my horizon and it's really actually my time and I'm not just imagining it, I may freak the hell out. I mean, I'm who knows what I'm going to do. So I like to, I like to say that out loud to myself and others and just make space for, I don't know. There's plenty I don't know. And we'll, we'll see. But that, even that has become a source of, of love and curiosity and sweetness. I'm, I, I guess it's also mirrors my own maturity in life. I don't feel the need to know everything um, on some level. And maybe that, I, I don't know if that's resignation or maturity or who knows what, but it feels, feels pretty good to me. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I I always notice whether it's um, so, you know some fictional retelling or or something more historical of like Spartans, Vikings, Lakota mm. warriors, like basically warrior societies where mm. 
or 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 any community or, that where death is a clear and present age. It could be it could be the mountaineering community. It could be big wave surfing. Like that, there is mm-hmm. there is a sort of it almost feels well. For one, there's the Valhalla thing of like today's a good day to die. Like my mm-hmm. question isn't can I avoid it? We know you know we we live way too close to the sharp end to kid mm-hmm. ourselves about that. The question is is can I navigate that transition with honor? Mm-hmm. And that's the victory, not cheating mm-hmm. death, not not Botox and fillers and, you know, and endless life support, <laughs> you know, um, right on. Right. Yeah. But, but it, and I and I and there's a degree of relief and satisfaction and gratification that, oh, OK, my number came up and I did it with dignity, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is yeah. which feels so weird and so fundamentally different than our contemporary whistling past the graveyard kind of right on. Right on. And from where I sit, I don't know how you feel about that statement, but to me, it's not just different. Uh, what you just described, I think, is a maturation. I think it's one of the ways you can tell that the U.S. as a country, per se, uh, um, not skipping past the Native history in this country, but the the U.S. of A, kind of last 200 and however many years, um, I think it's a tell how we treat aging and dying, that we try to whistle past the graveyard, to use your good phrase. That if I I don't you know if I if I put on my critical hat, I, I think that is an incomplete problematic take on death that doesn't do the subject justice and doesn't do yourself justice and sets you up for a spectacular fall when death finally does come calling and there's no more whistling. Mm-hmm. Um, so in so many ways, if so much of a lesson points us back to, well, if I can't control this. It, then it becomes about how I handle it, just mm-hmm. like you were saying, and that's where so much of that's where so much of the action is. Of course, whether it's death or other things that happen to us that we didn't choose or couldn't control, and I see that as, like I say, that's to me that's a mature, that's that's a that's a maturation to land where you just descept, describe, and it, I, I do hold out hope that our country, our nation, our society, that we're having a moment around death, and that this could catalyze be part of a new way of looking at ourselves in the world, a new way of appreciating life, a new way of appreciating nature. I think death has it in it to teach us a lot about all of those things. Well, and, and, and this, not intending this one to be a rabbit hole, because there's a, there's a main thread I absolutely <laughs> want to stay on, but, but, mm-hmm. um, what's your take on like the Methuselah project, Aubrey de Grey's immort, you know, life extension stuff. We, he and I were, were speaking at a mm-hmm. singularity U event in, in Africa. And mm-hmm. and he came on stage and and I and I just remember feeling like just sort of torn between on the one hand this is super inspirational and 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 really exciting mm-hmm. and on the other hand almost ghoulish, mm-hmm. juxtaposed against the amount of absolutely material visceral here and now suffering for mm-hmm. people in these lives and whether you know take your pick whether it's the suicide epidemic and more people mm-hmm. you know more people choosing to step off the mortal coil because they can't handle it, then mm-hmm. wars and natural disasters combine. You're like, whoa, that's a gut punch. Like we have to reckon mm-hmm. that to the potential overpopulation. Why would we be looking to extend and expand versus live mm-hmm. long, die fast, clear the lane? Mm-hmm. You, you know, you know those kinds of experiences. So, so do, do you have a, a, a thought or a perspective on mm-hmm. the, the kind of Silicon Valley techno-utopian mm-hmm. uh, project, cheat death? Yeah. 
don't know if you're going to listeners. I'm, I feel like I'm smirking and that's a little per- on purpose. I, I do, I do hold out a little, it's not contempt. I, I just, I just like a wink. I just like, okay, well, I'll watch you play that out. We'll see where you go. And Hey, I don't know everything. Um, but you know, let, let's just take some of that. What you just said, Jamie, let's open that up a little bit. So like a moment ago, I said, <clears throat> um, as familiar as I've become with the subject to a point, I do hold out that I may lose my shit, as they say, when I'm getting close to my end. I, you know, and that's not I, what it, it, that's not, wouldn't be a failure in my book. In fact, one of the things I love about death is you can't fail it. You will succeed at dying. That is <laughs> one of the most comforting thoughts that I have because I, we are so performative. We are so trying to lever ourselves, wrench more and more out of ourselves. And we set ourselves up for the success failure dynamic. We reify it in each other all the time. And there's something to it. I do it all the time. I, I hedge, I lever myself to get more out of my life. And that's okay. That's lovely. I'm, I'm all for it. But the, thing that the idea of what death keeps doing is it says, every time you think you kind of have something it's clear death kind of reminds you what you don't know, what you don't have. It has a way of, in this way, if you pursue it, it expands you. It expands your capacity to sit with maybe me freaking out at my own deathbed. Maybe that's just maybe what I need to do. And so I'm not going to hate myself for that. My my preparation is to not, is not so much to not freak out. It's to not freak out at freaking out. It's like this secondary, like, like how we get... Sometimes people have to deal with depression. Then they have to feel ashamed to be depressed on top of it. Or some people like I, myself as a disabled person, I not only have to deal with disability and the pain and whatever goes with it, I have to be embarrassed too. That's ridiculous. And like, that's the stuff I'm trying to shave off. Mm-hmm. So it's more like it's, it's, it takes us to a sort of a meta level, you might say, where you can watch yourself have all these reactions. And the, the, the enemy here for me would be set, would be hating myself for having natural responses or being a hating myself for being afraid. So death pulls us into this place where you have to make space for all of it. It really challenges the either or thing, these these dyads we keep setting up for ourselves. So like back to your question, um, all this sort of rush for immortality or at least life extension, um, you know, I can watch that even participate in it. And of course, I'm not against life extension. I worry that it plays into the shame we already experience and foist on each other as we age and die. So if we hold out that you could succeed at living longer, well, we're also setting ourselves up for yet another thing to fail at. And that seems to undermine the power of death on some level. And I'm very leery of that. But if I can hang out on my perch, I can applaud Aubrey. I can do... all the work that you're doing too, a lot of many people are doing to optimize our time on this planet and maybe even extend it. Beautiful. That doesn't have to be pitted against death. It doesn't have to play into life versus death. I don't buy that. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important that death is part of life. And if I live a little longer, I'm all for that. I live a little better. Great. That doesn't mean I have to hate death in order to lever myself that way. So that's that's that's. does that make sense? A little bit, Jamie, what I'm saying as a response. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and you you said something in your initial response where you said, and we now know that death isn't the end, something, something mm-hmm. to that effect. What did you mean by that? What is it that we now know? Well, we've known it for a while. I don't think it's even, it's just more that we, we're so, we so conflate 
life with my life. And not only I can then I further conflate my life with my ego or my identity. So we know, we know in a long time that you put a body, a body dies, put a body on the ground, it will decompose. That matter becomes other things. That energy transform, transforms. There is no death of my atoms. There's no death of my molecules in this way. My body goes on to uh, produce other forms of life. That's an immortality. That sort of knocks on death, this idea of death being so final. So even just tracing the body, we know it does these things. It keeps going in these other ways. Or take the emotional plane, like being two humans who affect each other or with animals or like the emotional residue we leave. Like after you and I are done talking to Jamie, I'll still be thinking of you hours and days and weeks and months from now. I'll be thinking of our conversation. It will live on in me, even though the conversation per se may have stopped. So that keeps on playing out in some way. Um, you know, our, our legacies, the things that we leave behind, the people we touch, et cetera, all those things keep going. So even, I'm not even, saying even death. epigenetic, even epigenetic memory, like ancestral. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. So on all these planes, so you start sort of this thing that feels so concrete, so foreign, isn't so concrete and isn't so foreign. We die all sorts of ways across our lives. We lose things. We lose parts of the body parts, images, relationships, etc. We have little deaths all the time. So now, now, yeah. now what about continuity? So, so because, and, and I'm, I'm going to bungle the, the research, but I seem to remember reading something in the last couple of years where it was basically just sort of at least hypothesizing slash, you know, somewhat proving some continuity or still coherence of consciousness and being post technical clinical flatlines. Mm -hmm. And on the one hand, that's neat, you know, super interesting, fascinating. And on the other hand, I was like, oh shit, what about organ donation? Like, are you actually getting cut to pieces while there's a part of you that could still be in coherence? <laughs> so help me with that. Like, what do you do on your driver's license? Because, you know, of course you're like, hey, man, if, 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 I'm, if, if, if my number gets punched, of course I want to be supporting other people <laughs> with mm -hmm. organ transplants, with whatever. And on the other hand, no, I don't want to still be there almost like a lock-in <laughs> getting dismembered by accident. <laughs> right and i don't sorry that's i mean i don't know why i'm laughing that's not funny but i mean it is well, yeah, yeah, it, is. it would be a little awkward i mean it's definitely awkward i'm not dead yet yeah, yeah right i mean they're good monty python ha helped us with this too you know there's so right on and this is where knowledge and beliefs there's a there's an interface here where we're tripping there's a limit to what we actually know and then our beliefs might take over. And then from there, it may be an embrace of not knowing or mystery. And that's sort of our panoply. And so what you're pointing to is somewhere in that space between knowledge and, and belief. So what we're left with, and this is part of the mundane thing of death. At the end of the day, we're like, right, I'm one guy. This is one life of a gazillion. I'll do what I can. You know, we'll see. I'll pursue what I, I'll know what I know. I'll try to know more. I'll try to be honest about what I don't know and do my best. And my sense is it's the same way on this point, you know, like having witnessed deaths, having been at the deathbed, having been there after the death, having talked to people who've had near-death experiences, having come close to it myself um, when I was 19, all of those experiences, or should I say none of those experiences suggest that there's some 
um, you know, when we're buggering the body after we're done dying, whether it's for organ donation or whatever, putting formaldehyde in it or whatever we do to our poor bodies when we're done with them. Um, there's no, I've seen no evidence of distress or suggestion that we're actually quietly, secretly, accidentally torturing each other or ourselves in that way after the death. That if consciousness exists as an intact thing, it's not, I, I would struggle to believe that it, it's limited in the ways that our, our bodily physiology is limited. Maybe it is part of our physiology, but if it is, it's in ways that we don't yet understand. And I have to believe there's something independent of our consciousness from our bodies. My own gut sense and all my experience suggests that. Is that wishful thinking? Because God, I'd sure hate to think in all those deaths I've been around that I've actually been torturing people. Um, so maybe it's my own bias, but I just don't believe that. I think consciousness is bigger than our bodies. So, so what's your sense then? Uh, if if you were tentatively advancing the hypothesis, I don't think that consciousness and presumably whatever our mediated selfhood is, is actually limited to physicality. What what what's your take on where does it live? I don't think we have words or constructs for that yet. So we're going to keep bumping up against our human limits, our language limits, to try to grope our way forward. We'll see where all that go. We'll see where it lands us. I think we're onto something here. And another thing, reifying my statement there, is my own experiences when I was in the hospital, um, where I where I was pretty darn close to death, and there was a feeling of, mm, and it was a feeling. It sure it had some thoughts too, but it was a sense, right? It was a sense that. Oh, Oh yeah, maybe I'll die. Maybe I won't. You know, it wasn't a fatalism. It was just a like a deep acceptance, a deep knowing that my body had that my that my body had this. That what was playing out here potentially was a natural act that we are wired for on some level, and I just had to get out of its way. And with all the pain going on, it wasn't hard to get out of its way. Mm-hmm. I felt. Um, to give it any word is limiting, but its closest thing I would say would be, you know, peace, mm, like like nonplussed. Oh, I could go mm. left, I could go right. Oh, great. Either way, end of, this is where I think of, like end of life, we use this phrase life, end of life, like <laughs> end of my life, end of your life, end of a life, but life keeps on churning. You know, and I think that's a really important distinction. Again, trying to get away from, not away from, but to put the ego in its place. And the last, another sort of example where I, where I just experienced something of what we're talking about, I think, is in my own, uh, um, my own use of psychedelics, my own playing with these chemicals. And it is playing. I don't mean in a recreational, like, ha, ha, ha way. But it is a play, there's a playfulness to it that feels right. Where you are breaking down, you're, you're, you're breaking down and you're reconstituting a million different ways. You kind of watch yourself fall apart and come together, fall apart, come together. And recently, I had an experience uh, with DMT that put me in that place where I, I, BJ, wasn't really there. I was, and I wasn't. Uh, I, it's I, like I say, I will chip over the words. 
there aren't words for it. But what was so stunning was I you could see what what exists underneath your ego. You can see what's underneath your uh identity. You could feel part of some rippling fabric that was churning in a way that was so massive, so hard to understand that we weren't going to get there with our brains alone is a feeling. And it was like the abs, I realized how self-reflective we are. I'm constantly looking back on myself to tell myself what I should or should do. I'm constantly in this self other engagement internally i'm constantly stepping out of myself to look back at myself and when i took myself bj out of that picture there was this huge vast churning creative life thing underneath this and that was beautiful and it was reassuring and it just put my brain and its words and its thoughts in its place in a sweet way i'm not i love my brain i love myself Mm-hmm. That does it. I just, just need to not confuse it with everything else. You know, mm-hmm. there's a sort of proportionality that I'm looking for. Well, does that what, make sense? What, well, I'm I'm super curious as to what was what was the plot of that experience in hyperspace. Well, that's that's that, that's much a, that's much a point. There really wasn't a plot. A plot is a narrative, is a story, is words, has is these constructs, right? Um, so there really wasn't a plot. It was a it was a sensation. It was a feeling. Every time I tried to write something or put into words, I am back in that reflective place where I'm out of it, looking at it. Mm-hmm. That's different than being in it. Um, and so I was just in it. Whatever plots, there were some giddiness coming in and out of the experience and some stories I told myself as I watched my ego come back online. I could see my stories for what they were. I can love my stories. I love illusions. Let's just call them illusions. That's just, like the problem is you conflate all these things, right? So there really wasn't much of a plot. I played around in my integration moment trying to kind of uh, assert one, but they all fell apart. Nothing, nothing lasted. Um, nothing well, it, stuck. It, yeah, it, it's that. Um, I think it's either Heraclitus or it's William Blake, but it, it's as you know as requoted by. McKenna, but it's nothing lasts, nothing lasts, nothing lasts, paren, and nothing is lost. Hmm. Amen. Right on. That sounds right on to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. For me, for me, those experiences, I always get this kind of like gut churningly queasy feeling that the mm. game is afoot. The stakes are high. There's seven, there's, there's an infinite multidimensional chess match going on. And I've just been like forgetting for a moment that all the extra layers of it are, you know, and I'm needed at full strength and I'm required to be sacking the fuck up and whatever I'm diddling around <laughs> with down here in 3d is just, you know, the wrapper on, <laughs> uh, on a much more consequential thing. You know, it's almost like going out surfing yeah. and just feeling the pressure wave of a hundred foot creature swim by underneath you. And you're like, whoa, you know? <laughs> yeah, I get that rush on my motorcycle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Well, it's, it's, you, you, you strike me. I mean, as you describe, you know, the formative experience of your accident in college and this kind of like you're, you, you know, in some respects, you are shamanically mocked as Chiron paddling the river sticks, right? I mean, you, you are a, an, an emissary between worlds. Feels that way. It does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
so so I'm curious. I mean, you've had more more laps than most people ever experience. Um, do have you? Is there anything in your fact pattern of just the experiences you've had that leave you pondering? Like, uh, do you do you have some hypotheses mm. that most of us would not get the chance to see? Well, I certainly wonder. I certainly love pulling my chair up to the abyss and staring into it. I love staring into the night sky, but part because there's no hypothesis there. I, I just love the feeling. I just love being at the, my own limits at the edge of where I merge with the universe or the cosmic soup, as you put it. No, I don't, I don't know that I, I, like I say, yeah, sorry. I'm, I'm really checking my brain on your question. Do I have a hypothesis? I don't know that I do. <laughs> I don't know if that's I don't know if that's reassuring or problematic, but I think that's my answer. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's yeah. To me, um, it, this is personally, and this is true for me across a, a broad range of non-ordinary experiences. But I sort of find myself subscribing to a sort of agnostic gnosticism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yes. you're like, there's I definitely do. real, there's definitely real immersive experience that, that, that is, you know, that is, um, effing the ineffable. It's the peace that passeth all understandings, whatever it is, but what to make sense of it, to extrapolate or to codify seems like a fool's errand. Mm-hmm. Right on. You know, and curiosity and attentiveness and openness seems just a more generative space spot to stand completely right on brother i mean you just said you just and quakers would say you speak my mind uh you know that that's that i feel i would sign up for that religion that you just laid out i put sign me up uh mm -hmm. that's that's yeah mm -hmm. yes well, well so speaking of that right i mean obviously um you know, various scholars would make the case and Ernest Becker's denial of death and, you know, that, that whole deep, rich tradition would make the case that religion simply was, you know, some, somehow a, an, uh, a construct for us to try and wrestle with the inevitability of death. And then, interestingly, I don't know if this is, I don't know if this goes hand in hand with that original requirement and you know and obviously we track civilization we track some form of culture as death death rights you know the even extending of consciousness to neanderthals because oh it looks like they did actually orient their bodies east west or did you know or did some death mm -hmm. preparation they must have been thinking that this is a meaningful thing therefore we're now going to confer to them what we used to keep for homo sapiens sapiens mm -hmm. right right mm -hmm. and 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 um I think it's it's fairly well established that in many vibrant experiential religious traditions around the world, from indigenous shamanism through the Eleusinian mysteries, through you know, and quite a lot of rites of passage and initiations around the world, mm. right, uh, in themselves have created the psychosocial technology of death practices. So, what's your sense, our, our buddy? Um, Brian Murarescu, he wrote, recently wrote a book called The Immortality Key, which was basically about, it's a fascinating story. I mean, it's very much like a real world Da Vinci Code. He's, he's a, trained as a lawyer, but he then went to the Vatican, went into their catacombs, studied for 10 years, ancient texts, the whole bit, but basically a pagan continuity hypothesis that the Eleusinian, the psychedelic psychoactive 
death, rebirth, initiatory rituals of the Lucinian mysteries persisted into Gnostic first century Christianity. And, you know, and, and lots of painstaking analysis, archaeochemistry, looking at pots and earthenware, the whole bit. Right. Mm -hmm. And really, you know, really just quoting time after time after time, different leaders, thinkers, artists, theologians, et cetera, commenting on, hinting at, pointing at, hey, you know, it, it's the Plato, you know, the mysteries don't just teach us how to die a better death. They teach us how to live a better life, all these things. So what's your sense, if you have one, on that sort of ubiquity and pervasiveness of practicing resurrection, of death rebirth rituals as seedbed or source of, you know, a shit pile of culture. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Part of that practicing resurrection is decentralizing your sense of self and living through others and being part of something outside of yourself that includes yourself, etc. So I like to, uh, I think it's really important in this that the thing that's not being resurrected is the thing being resurrected is not necessarily this limited version of ourself, this narrow, concrete, I am BJ, you are Jamie. I think the resurrection practice in daily life has a lot to do with yielding to how connected we are, how much I live through you and you through me and et cetera. So anyway, there's much to say about that, but I, I definitely think that that language that we're all pointing to a very similar thing here, that dying, another way to put it is like, why wait till death to die? Like, it's not just a practice in the abstract. If I read any of those texts correctly, the de these deaths are happening not as an exercise, but part of what you got to key into is, I mean, you're dying all the time. You're, you're sloughing cells. Your waste make the waste you make is death, a little pieces of death. You know, like I was saying earlier, our sense of self, we yesterday is dead to us. It's in the past, this way we're sort of a future oriented as we churn into our future. The past becomes something of a of a death. I mean, and I don't mean this just metaphorically. I mean this, let yourself actually bake in that process that is happening, whether you see it or not, it's happening all the time. And I think the joy is making that conscious of playing with that, rolling with that, delighting in that, feeling all the feelings that go with that. That to me is the practice. Um, so yes, I don't think we should practice our deaths in the abstract. I think we should look at how we're dying each moment and yet, and yet, and yet living in each moment. And those two things are entwined. Mm -hmm. So even if you're just pursuing life, you will have to come to death. You will have to realize death as part of your pursuit of life, I think. And I think that's what Wendell Berry and others are trying to help us realize. Mm. Yeah. 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 I mean, and, and, and to your point about your own potential death, and you say, you know, you might freak out. Right. Like I, I think it's, it's, it's poetic to say practice resurrection and it's poetic to say, Hey, let go of our pain, our pleasure, our preferences, mm -hmm. our struggles. And you ever like, yeah, yeah. Right on, right on. Yeah. Here, oh man. Got it. Right. Right. But, then, but the reality is, is like every single death, we absolutely white knuckle that shit. We absolutely don't want it to have to happen. 
Mm-hmm. There is there is there is the, a reflexive dying raging against the dying of the light. We're like, no, 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 fuck mm-hmm. it. I, I want this thing mm-hmm. to work. I want to be seen or to win or to succeed or to be validated and to have that stuff ripped out of our hands mm-hmm. is always deeply uncomfortable. And mm-hmm. I don't think we ever get over that. Like I constantly catch myself in that. I'm like, oh no, I've signed up for this. I'm totally down. And then it's like, ah, 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 you know, <laughs> but not this time, not this way, you know. So it feels it feels a perpetual, um, it's a, it feels like a perpetual tearing. Yes, yeah. yes. And this way, life on, on the on the mortal coil way is. I mean, the first fucking thing we do when we come into this life is we wail. You know, there's it's a vi- there's a violence to birth. There's a violence to death. These words, I mean, they have different meanings, but you know, yeah, that the tearing thing, I, I, you know, that's why my sense, I think, that's why I would keep pointing us back to this sort of this meta level where peace is not being calm, peace is not hating yourself for not being calm, or something like that. There's something that a, a more durable peace allows for anything in a way, it just doesn't grasp at it. It doesn't grasp at grasping. Uh, so, you know, I mean that, so yeah, I feel that all the time. I, and I have, I've, I've started to equate, you know, those, one of the ways I know I'm, uh, I'm alive often enough is that tension you're describing is actual pain. It's one of the things that tells me I'm actually still here, <laughs> that I'm still going is that I'm struggling. That that's a sign of life on some level. So right on, you know, we don't need to, Speaking of cosmic orphans, we should not. Part of the cue for me in that, in what you wrote about cosmic orphans, and even the concept is, don't orphan yourself. Like, like that. Don't leave part of yourself out of the equation. Like, don't sort of positivism and trying to to sort of buffer ourselves against the negative. It's like, fuck that. I. You know, <laughs> that to me seems like it's a shocking waste of time and what a boring life it would be to have no neuroses, no problems, no suffering, no pain, et cetera, no relevancy. So anyway, yeah, um, I, I think um, like we were saying earlier, your opening question to me about it, what we learned from death earlier on, like I was saying, this is, our conversation is mirroring my own evolution on it which is i used to think the goal was comfort the goal was peace to keep the negative stuff out of the room to keep the pain out of the room all that stuff no no that's like keeping life out of the room so no no i think it's much better yes let's turn down the noise with morphine to some degree so that we can maybe be a little more more present sure i'm all for symptom management to a point but that's that's step one that's not the goal Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, now this, I've only just come across this, so I'm, I'll be amazed and, and, and impressed if you, if you, if you've already, if you've already tracked this, but, um, have you, have you come across D.H. Lawrence's poem, The Ship of Death? Mm-mm. So I backdoored into this. This was actually a, a friend of mine who's a, a Harvard psychologist who kept talking about Jungian psychology, saying that the entire purpose of life is to build your ship of death. Mm. Right. And I was like, oh, that's such a powerful, spooky, you know, evocative phrase. Where did it come from? Mm-hmm. And then it turns out it comes from D.H. Lawrence. And and he he writes, the, I mean, it's, it's it's got multiple verses, but he says, he says, build then the ship of death, for you must take the longest journey to oblivion and die the death, the long and painful death that lies between the old self and the new. 
Mm-hmm. Right. And then apparently mm-hmm. Jungians took that and then rolled it into this entire sort of, you know, project or just, you know, body of reference that, that it is our mm-hmm. goal to effectively make it from the idealistic, you know, fundamentally adolescent pre-tragic relationship, mm-hmm. right? Through the tragedy into the post-tragic and the post-tragic is, uh, you know, and in fact, I think in Tolkien, right? I mean, the elves are always talking about when they get to hop on those boats and fuck off and sail west, right? <laughs> they're, they're literally like, peace out, humans, like Middle Earth is overrated, <laughs> you know? Um, and so that sense of like us, that the, the, the project of life is to build our ships of death. Mm-hmm feels I, I mean i haven't even I, like I'm, I'm delightfully not i haven't wrapped my head around it yet but i you know but it's just kind of sitting here uh as something really neat to consider amen well it's evocative as hell it's a beautiful image and and one way or another to yet another moment where i think he's telling us that death oblivion that's part of the deal that's not some failing or some place to avoid that is that's a place to go to and it's almost, I, I think of like skiing. I don't know if, you, if you're a skier, Jamie. Yeah. You know, yeah. you know, when you learn shit, I got to want to fly down this mountain going a zillion miles an hour and it sounds scary and I don't know how to control that. And one of the first things, if you're going to get any good at, 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 at skiing at all, you eventually have to learn that you actually lean downhill. You actually roll with it. You don't fight it. You yeah. move with it. I would imagine surfing's much the same. And that goes against some immediate reflexes. But once and, you and rock that, climbing too, right? You all you have to overcome the death instinct. If you cling to the rock, you lose your traction on your shoes, right? Right on. And I would say, you tell me, but the way to overcome death anxiety would be to go into it. I don't think you step around it. Because once you're in it, then you realize you have some agency, you have lines of sight. Um you're not as afraid because it's not this impending thing. It's in you. It's there. You're there. Mm-hmm. So, right. So in so many ways, I think D.H. Lawrence is, I mean, one of one of the ways I'm reading what your quote there is like, is something like leaning into your, leaning downhill, leaning like, you know, find a way. This oblivion thing is part of the deal. So find a way to go to it, work with it, create towards it, building a ship. That's a creative, beautiful, creative, functional, practical act too right i mean you are you are creating something that wasn't there to help you wrap your head around and embrace a fuller truth and the fuller truth includes death the fuller truth includes oblivion so right i i think all these guys are telling us to lean into this place go there that's Mm -hmm. where the life is Mm -hmm. maybe that's ironic it's probably only ironic because our language suggests suggests so but Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't think it's fundamentally ironic at all. But it's ca- yeah, it's counterintuitive from yeah, reactive yeah. survival patterning. Right on. Right. Right. But once you override that, you realize it's actually the thing that keeps me alive. Like doing the counterintuitive, falling down the mountain, attacking the hill, even though I'm afraid of the hill. Right. right. Leading away from the rock, even though I'm terrified of falling off the rock. All these things have the paradoxical benefit of actually alleviating your fears. It's the, you know, the classic shit with attachment theory. Like I withdraw and I defend myself and I deny me and you mutuality and true love. Therefore, I'm far more likely to get kicked to the curb and be left alone, reinforcing my somatic imprint, you know, of scarcity, right? All that shit. So, so we've been philosophical and somewhat humanistic in, Mm -hmm. in our 
conversation so far, um, but you got an MD at the end of your name. And, mm -hmm. and I'd love to also kind of just tack over to, so you said, hey, let's lean into this. One of the things, probably one of the things I'm sort of most curious about, excited about, kind of, you know, yeah, just look forward to sort of exploring in dialogues like this with more with more kind of friends, peers, and colleagues is what I found myself stumbling on in the research for Recapture the Rapture was effectively what felt like the neurophysiological protocols mm -hmm. for death rebirth practice. Mm -hmm. And it and it seems like, and I and I hadn't come across, and maybe you have, but I hadn't come across prior anybody assembling them and making the correlation to the existing, you know, ethnographic literature, like just what have we done as humans throughout history around this thing? But it, it for sure um, felt like there was correlations with just again and again, different studies, different research, different modalities, <laughs> thing, things that offer a deep brainstem stimulative global, you know, global systemic reset that often have a correlation with super low EEG delta wave states that quite often do something, right? Something with vagal nerve tone, you know, mm -hmm. just as kind of one of our root mechanisms may potentially, and I don't, this one, it, it's, to me, it's super important, but I don't know the interactivity, but something to do with our endocannabinoid system right mm -hmm. in the sense of signaling mechanisms and and, and homeo, you know sort of homeostatic metronomic mm -hmm. function um and then something to do with energy in the form of sound light vibration ac current mm -hmm. dc current pain orgasm something stimulation like global you know mass stimulation with of mm -hmm. intense of intensity to the nervous system um mm -hmm. and then potentially a respiratory element in, up to and including static apnea mm -hmm. seems to precipitate some form of lived and felt um, dying mm -hmm. and seem and typically in, includes highly information rich super salient interior experience mm -hmm. therein it's not i'm just cross-eyed and drooling it's not i blanked out and had amnesia it's like oh my god and whether that's and I don't know if you know Carl Dyseroth's work at Stanford. He's been doing, you know, he's mm. kind of the, the godfather mm. of optogenetics, right? And, mm -hmm. and he just did a study. They published it in Nature in the fall where they did it with epileptic patients and, and you know, genetically modified mice with ketamine, created a dissociative state, had this positive antidepressive effect, then realized it was three hertz in certain brain regions, then went back in and electrically stimulated in the humans and optogenetically stimulated in the mice, the three mm. hertz repeated and replicated the dissociative state, right? Minus the compound, the pharmacology. There, mm -hmm. I just saw a radar plot study of 5-MeO-DMT that in peak 5-MeO-DMT, it was literally pan-hemispheric, just the entire brain lit up in Delta, lit up. Mm -hmm. You know, MIT anesthesiologists doing comparable studies with nitrous oxide and double amplitude Delta wave activity with all obviously William James, Winston Churchill, like all, you know, all the folks who have mm. ever testified that there's a fucking thing there and it's, you know, it's super, <laughs> super salient, high, high information. So, you know, back to the, where do you think consciousness comes from? Mm. And here we appear to have, like, if you punch these buttons in, you know, take your pick and you don't need all of them exactly right, like mix and match, 
but let's say take two, two out of three and mm-hmm. choose your own adventure, you're going to have a, a wild, Mr. Toad, Mr. Sonoran, Desert Toad, wild ride. You're going to have mm-hmm. an epiphanic experience and potentially a neurophysiological discharge, reboot, global system reset, and return mm-hmm. to homeostasis. So A, how does that track for you? And B, mm-hmm. what the fuck? Because I think that's like the cheat codes <laughs> to the you know to the mysteries. Hmm. Right on. Well, yes, that does make sense to me. Um, that does smell right to me. It does smell like my own experience, you know. Um, so what is that? You know, what's going on there physiologically? I mean, I think you might find, and I know there are words for this. You're more a student of these of this subject than I am in a way. I don't read about it so much as I just go hang out in it. <laughs> um so I will fumble for the words, brother, but I do think what you are pointing to, first of all, I yes, I believe there's something there. And I think it gets at our our back to the the damage we do with our adjectives of things being either good or bad. You might describe all those those the the panoply of stimulation you just described. You know, those are forms of stress, of sort of a coordinated stress to the system, mm-hmm. and it's you get the feeling like a, you know, like cars want to be driven. You know, like you're not protecting a car by not driving it. In the same way, we have this massive, crazy physio- physiological system that's intricate and profound and stunning and wow, and it wants to be driven. It wants to ride, you know, it wants to do its thing. So I think there's, I think one of the things we're learning, we know is there's, there's such a thing as good stress if we must give it a, yeah, an adjective. Stress. Yes, right on. Exactly. So, you you know, holotropic breath work is, is it kind of puts us in a little bit of what you're describing, this vagal stimulation, this respiratory drive, some sort of interaction with our neurochemicals in some way sets us into this state, you know, uh, What's that guy, the Wim Hof and his breathing stuff and cold water? And, you know, um, I think these are all pointing to whether 5-MeO-DMT. There are different ways to do much the same thing, which is to sort of a coordinated stress to the system that lets our system do what it can do, what it wants to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a way, you blow out the stick with the metaphor. Like my feelings when I have those experiences that I'm I, – this the sense is I'm blowing out my carburetors. I'm like, mm-hmm. you know – and that's healthy. That's good. I feel lighter at the end of those stressful experiences. Um, so there's something good in there, right? There's something alive in there. What, how, how that works and um, all the myriad ways we might trip into it and make it part more of our daily lives rather than these sort of esoteric experiences, that I'm very interested in. Um because, you know, especially if you just follow the molecule DMT, if it's in all mammals, it's in we make it all the time, can we if th- these states that you're describing, these experiences that you're describing, if they are part of this natural makeup and they're, they're, they're among us all the time, it's just a matter of us accessing them. Well, I think over time we can practice our access, our access. We can notice it. I think we probably blow past a lot of these experiences just in the aesthetic, just the feeling of being in the woods or a sunset. It doesn't have whatever lights you up. Um, but I think I'm very interested in the aesthetic domain. The sense that I, I my sense, my, my sense is that we are ha- we have access to ecstasy 
much the time, but because of our distractions, our constructs, or whatever, our agendas, this means to an endness, this strategic kind of approach to life all the time, or what we're doing now is for something later. You know, I think that stuff gums us up, and we're probably blowing past. We have probably have much more access to this this zone that you're talking about than we realize. And we don't need to be in a yurt in the woods uh, with the toad necessarily. That can help facilitate that pathway, open up that pathway, and in a way familiarize ourselves with that place so that we're less likely to blow past it in our daily lives. But that's my senses. These are very normal places in a way. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm, I'm forever on the hunt for mm-hmm. common sense cosmology. Right, yeah. like, like, right, right, yeah. like rather than, I mean, I mean, fundamentally, it would be a sort of 21st century Western Taoism, mm. you know, or a transcendental existentialism, just like whatever the fuck is like, if you know, people talk about relational formats, you know, and is mm-hmm. it lifelong monogamy, serial monogamy, polyamory, whatever, whatever, whatever. And you're like, let's just I mean, what wants to be. Mm-hmm. And can we align our orienting generalizations so they are as close a match? Versus us propping up the way things ought to be that mm. we somehow decided. And, and then can we just work with what is? Mm. And, and to your point about death, right? I mean, death, you, I, I loved your bit about, you, you, you know, you're going to succeed at it. Mm. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? So, so we should probably relax into that. And, mm-hmm. and we should probably build, like, instead of what we're doing, which very much feels like King Canute, you know, like, or, or, or the little, you know, the little Dutch boy with the fingers in the dike, like we're trying to hold back a, a lot of reality. Right. And, 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 and the longer you hold it back, in fact, there's a fellow, there's a book called Trickster Makes This World. Mm-hmm. And it's a really neat uh, treatise on, on exactly in, you know, like embracing the trickster. And it said, it said, if you try and deny effectively the unpredictable, the scary, the fickle, the whimsical, right mm-hmm. of life you you invite chaos and cataclysm mm-hmm. downstream and and i always think of like the you know the, the glen canyon dam on the on the colorado mm-hmm. river and the grand canyon right i mean mm-hmm. you try and hold back nature and the and the rhythms of it of, flat, of flood and drought of how riverbanks and beaches and ecology and all of it are done and all we do is is you know we we bake in to the equation cataclysm downstream amen and this is what i meant earlier about how we orphan ourselves like internally we orphan ourselves from nature from our nature and as you're talking jamie i'm right there with you and i think what a disservice to the western tradition that maybe we're kind of i don't know if we're coming to a close who knows but the man versus nature bit you know that was in all of our high school literature um, it's certainly in the American experiment that, you know, nature's this thing to conquer or overcome or somehow prop ourselves up against to, you know, what the fuck are we doing? Wait, what? Why? Why? Are we, of course, we're alienating ourselves from reality, from nature. We explicitly we are. And until we see ourselves, until we see human nature as part of nature writ large, I think we're going to continue to be at odds with ourselves in around death and in every other, in, in so many other ways. Mm. So right on. I, you know, I don't, and I guess that was my feeling back in the hospital bed when I was near the end too. It was sort of like, ah, I, it was very 
it's a, it's important to be overwhelmed at times, you know. Mm. And I was overwhelmed. There was no choice. I was there was I had to submit to this idea of death being around the corner. I didn't. It was I, I the the tonnage of pain, the tonnage of fear of adrenaline coming at me. There was no. So it's not an exercise. Mm. And in that was its strength. I'm so glad I was overwhelmed. I actually don't mind being overwhelmed anymore. I actually kind of look forward to it. It tells <laughs> me a lot. It shows me a lot, you know? So a, 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 something that I've just kind of glimpsed out of the corner of my eye, and I don't, I wouldn't in most situations even broach it, right? But as mm. we see a move towards more, well, it basically increased grief, right? And a capacity to not be able to sort this out. And people are just fibrillating. And so whether it's the QAnon community or anti-vax community, magical thinking, conspiracy mm. theories, millenarianism, like it's all coming undone. Let's do something radical or drastic. Um, most Our conversation today has fundamentally been about, well, make peace with death. Stop fighting. Right. I want to, what I want to ask you is the exact opposite, because it seems to me that if conditions were to decohere mm -hmm. and you became somewhat convinced that the Mad Max hordes are coming for you or the mm -hmm. next Ebola or whatever it would be like our mm -hmm. numbers up and there's no way we're getting out of this mm -hmm. or there is some happily ever after and heaven's gate style. We want to actually mm -hmm. accelerate our transition to get off this world of suffering, this mortal coil. What is to prevent the rise of ecstatic death cults? Hmm. And how would you make the case, which, which is, is not in opposition. I understand you know, that, that, that it's a false paradox, but how would you make the case to say, actually, no, don't slip out. Don't step out. Don't check out. Do rage against the dying of the light until the moment that it actually comes. How would you, what, what case would you make if, if you wanted to make one to mm -hmm. say, Hey, this life is precious too. And we, and we ought to put, you know, like help us reconcile that paradox. Cause I could see an awful mm -hmm. lot more people, right? The, the, the diseases of despair are there. Um, there was a story I heard that haunted me from a decade ago, which was, uh, the young, some members of the Yanomamo tribe down in the mm -hmm. Amazon were so distraught with their loss of habitat, the encroaching of mining and logging, et cetera, that they were literally hanging themselves on jungle vines. Mm -hmm. nothing, nothing abrupt or violent, just literally just collapsing and literally giving up the ghost. Mm -hmm. Right? So how do we, how do we rat, take a stand against, against that or acknowledge it mm -hmm. and weep for it? Or what would you say? What would you offer to somebody who is in the despair of trying to solve the Gordian knot monkey puzzle of today what case would you make for hanging around and seeing it through well it's lots to say let's you might have to remind me of some of the things you just said so nicely but um it's a little bit like when you're actually in that place when you're actually inhabiting this life death interplay not just thinking about it or worrying about it. You know, I think so for so many of us, like as a kid, I hated, if I had an exam or a paper due two weeks hence, I, I, it was harder for me 
I, I'd rather be taking the goddamn test than be worrying about the test. Like there's something better <laughs> about actually being in the thing you're worrying about. It almost always is more interesting, less horrifying than we imagine it to be. So one key comment, if I were advising anyone here, would be like, oh, yeah, let's just, let's see, you know, as this abstraction becomes more and more real, see how you feel, you know, and what, it, what do you have to lose? You know, and it's a little bit reminds me of the feeling I had in the hospital bed where it was really like, oh, like, and I have, this has stuck with me. I choose life again and again and again. I live near death. And some days I actually what might conceive of choosing it. My sister chose it. I've known many people who have. I, you know, I'll, no shame. If you're done, okay. You know, I'm not going to guilt you around that. Um. But in those moments, I keep finding when I'm at that, what feels like a limit, I'm like, okay, well, I'm still here. Uh, you know, I guess oblivion's waiting for me either way. So if I'm still here, might as well keep going or keep trying because the end's coming no matter what I do. Why would I expedite the end? Uh, so in other words, I just kind of keep hanging in there, stay in the zone, keep choosing life. Most every day I have to say, do I want to do this another day? Am I going to try to do this loving thing, especially in, in front of this Gordian knot you're describing of our times? And it's always like a 51-49 for me. <laughs> I'm always like, ah, okay, on balance. 51% of me says, keep going. Okay, I'll keep going. And in that sort of humdrum, very boring-ish kind of way, you just kind of keep choosing it until you can't. As long as you have a choice, you might as well keep choosing life. Because who knows what's coming? Even as dire as it may feel, keep holding out the possibility of being surprised. That's why I love doting on the things that we don't know, um, the mystery. Because in that, in the mystery, may be solutions we haven't we haven't grokked yet. So hanging in there another moment may avail you of some more information, or, or at least an enjoyable experience, or at least an overwhelming experience, something. So in this very boring way, I'd say just, if you can, keep choosing it. You're going to die anyway, so it's coming, you know. Yeah, okay. So that's, that's, that's one res response. Um, if you're really teasing out your fear of an impending doom from actually being in the doom, if you're really clear that death is part of life and coming no matter what you do, those two things soften soften the edges a little bit and have allowed me to keep so far anyway to keep choosing life another moment another day so does that does that you you feel in that because does that make sense to you jamie as i was describing that can you imagine that do you have a, a, a an analogy in your own life do you hang out at the 51 49 zone do you need or do you need to make a more robust case for life to keep trying hmm well, I was just I was just arrested by your um, your mention of your sister. Did did she voluntarily exit? Yeah, 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 yeah. And just the way you hold that, like that in itself, was a shift for me. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, you know, like that felt tender and mm. and beautiful, and also fairly rare. Mm-hmm. Right, we collapse into the tragic stories. We collapse into something other than how you appear to be holding it. Yeah. So I was, I was still there. I was when you said that. I was just like, <laughs> holy shit, wow. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. been a real teacher for me. That's uh, this idea that death is no one wants to die and every bullshit. Plenty of people want to die. I want to die sometimes. I know a lot of people who have chosen it. So no, I think there's something important in there. And just to kind of, I, I don't want to cut you off, but just to say, yeah, it is a very tender place. Um, vulnerability, tenderness, those things now read to me as strengths. I used to put play into those were weaknesses inherently. No, not at all. What's what's strong about something that's invulnerable? It can't help but be strong. That's not very strong. Something that can fall apart and chooses to keep to to not, that to me is strong. Something that can fall apart and still be itself, that to me is strong. So my sister Lisa is one of the great teachers for me there. Like when I realize when I get upset about her death, I I can trace it back. Uh, and this is true of grief in general. I wonder how you feel about your mom's death on this one, as you mentioned earlier. But I've come to see grief as a very essential pro process, not not this thing to run away from or avoid. Actually, yeah. a very loving process. And yes. I so when I get upset about missing my sister and sometimes angry at her for leaving, leaving me, leaving, mm. uh, I remember that's that's me just missing her. That's me just mm -hmm. wishing I had more. Yeah. That's okay. I can wish I had more. But my choices weren't have Lisa indefinitely. My choices were... Don't have Lisa at all or have her for the 29 years I had her. Those were really the options. I could have denied her existence while she was on the planet or I could have delighted in her for the time I had. And if presented that way, well, then then I got a pretty good deal. I got 29 fucking years with her. You know, so I can, I, I'm aware of the, as suspicious I am of our constructs, um, I'm not suspicious of them. They're very useful. I love to play with them. I'm suspicious when we confuse our constructs with the whole of reality that we're trying to understand. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, um, James Hillman, the the mm -hmm. depth psychologist, right? He yeah. wrote a book, Suicide and the Soul. Suicide and the Soul. Yeah. Right, and and he makes that case. He's like he's like you know our whole relationship to that is based on Roman law. English law and fundamentally in Christian doctrine and, and quite a few, you know, quite a few others religions, but that idea that like, we don't have the right to do that. We can murder, we can take life, we can do all sorts of other <laughs> hardcore things, but mm -hmm. that one is anathema. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even, I mean, and I probably bum people out and maybe send a few people to the exits, but we were doing a leadership course um, mm -hmm. a couple of years ago. And, and I basically said, look, look, if you're going to presume to be helping people you know, um, you have to actually peer into the screaming abyss yourself. We start with camp 101. The only serious question is whether or not to commit suicide. If you don't have a good answer for that one, you have no right to be leaping people up their own mountainsides because they might stumble across that one. And if all you've got is platitudes and fucking Instagram quotes, <laughs> you, right? You're done. So, so like lapel into the screaming abyss, right? Uh -huh. like, feel the air underneath you. And, and for me, no, I think it's, I think there's, there's, I mean, I, I always encourage like, I'm like, if you don't like, I was like, take the fucking blue pill friends. If you mm -hmm. do not have to rip the bandaid off consensus reality and, and your comforting uh, mm -hmm. stories, if they're still working for you, milk them. Right. You, you know, this, this, it is not right. for the faint of heart. And for me, and you know, even for my, in my relationship with my, with my 
partner, um, you, there's a number of times where you're like, if you've seen both sides of everything and you've abandoned, you, you, there's one of two choices, right? You either go Brando and Apocalypse Now, right? Or, or Heath Ledger's Joker. You're like, okay, it's fucking all pointless. So mm -hmm. I'm just going to blow shit up, right? Or sort of Nietzschean will to power, right? Mm -hmm. um, or you move into some bodhisattvic Christic service to the witnessing of the broke openness of it all, mm -hmm. you know, and, and for me that the pick me up off the floor, um, reboot, which will may sound super underwhelming, but weirdly it works for me, which is if I feel that like, this is pointless, there is no way out. Um, this is just, you know, again, a sort of existentialist groundhog day to the grave. So why not fucking, you know, why bother? It's mm -hmm. it's seek novelty, make art, and help out. Mm -hmm. You know, like like if I'm re because typically if I'm in that state, it's usually because there is something that's become repetitive or routinized, and I'm and I'm actually lacking novelty. And we are obviously like we're literally hardwired for dopamine salience, discarding the familiar for seeking something new, innovating, pushing. To say nothing of it's a wild, wonderful, beautiful planet, and holy shit, let's go explore mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. The make art is very much like, I always think of that World War II graffiti, like the Kilroy was here, you know, mm -hmm. that little nose with the dude like hanging over the wall. <laughs> and, and that idea of like, those were like 18, 19 year old boys most of the time. They had no idea whether they were alive tomorrow. And they would make that testament, you know, like I, I was here, even if it's like this everyman Kilroy archetype, like I was here, like, like, like see me, I existed. So making art, like something that, something that is counter to the second law of thermodynamics. You know, it could be a garden, it could be a poem, it could be a song, it could be a family, it doesn't, like, whatever that is anything other than entropy and decay, mm -hmm. right? And then if you figured out those two, then turn around and help somebody else who hasn't. I and want I, to hug you, yes, yes, <laughs> yes. And, and that will get me up off, flat off my back. Yes. And back in the game every single goddamn time. Yes. Me too, so far, right? So, so far. far. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think there's something so I think we need I'd love to spend a quick second on that part of what you were just saying here because it gets it's another thread of our conversation, whether we're talking about five MEO DMT or the aesthetic domain or that part of the potency, and this is why I studied art history as my undergraduate education, coming out of my injuries, studying art was intuitively oh. the right move. Wow. It was a it was a gut, it was a hunch and it was right on. I, we could talk for a long hours about that. But one of the things I realized was the potency of this human compulsion to create, to make things from our experiences is, is, you know, originally I thought of art as something in museums, like that was a highfalutin thing and a, a, for a few of us did. But I came to see from my own experience with disability, how creative daily life is. It's filled with improv and that we can, I can look at my body with my prosthetic legs and stuff as, as a creative enterprise. And not only is that enriching and gets and, and, and a good means to an end, the real potency is where the ends and the means merge, where art for art's sake, existence for its own sake. There is, if you can set up a little creative thing that flies in the face of the second law of thermodynamics, then not only have you sort of positioned something 
uh, as a caveat to nature otherwise without you there, but you've delighted in something for its own sake. It's contained. It's self-contained. It needs nothing else to be satisfied. That, whether you're making a piece of art or just that's a point of view, if you can find your way to that for its own sakeness, coupled with basic morality, of course, like I wouldn't appreciate the aesthetic of like, I just love the feeling of murdering people or something that's not, not a feeling to pursue for its own sake. So within some basic moral framework, we have a lot of freedom. And I think humans are way, I think we are way freer than we think we are, or probably freer than we want to be. Because, you know, this whole <laughs> existential stuff comes with a lot of responsibility when you actually realize you, you have choice, you have freedom. Well, then you have to choose wisely. You know, if everything's just happening to you, well... In a way, that's a pretty easy place to hang out. It's not very inspired, but it's not very challenging. Um, it's not very hard. So anyway, there's, I guess the point I wanted to make here was this means and ends merging and why I'm so, I think that is such a powerful place to know and to invite into your daily life. And that reminds me of one other thing you're asking about this sort of Gordian knot and describing folks in the Amazon hanging themselves, etc. Yeah, that may be a symbolic hanging where there's almost like a monk uh, self-immolation. Uh, um, it may be a statement. And okay, but if what's pushing someone, I see this in my clinic. I see this in folks that I talk to around their own like who have death anxieties. They're like, if you follow the logic, it's like, I'm so freaked out that I'm going to die soon. I'm so freaked out that I have to die. I'm so freaked out that we humans have fucked the planet. Whatever. Pick your thing that you're freaked out about. That I, I, and I love life so much and the idea of it ending is so, I can't handle it. So therefore, I want to die sooner. There's a problem. There's a, there, there, that's a problematic thought loop. If you're, what sense does it make if you're afraid of death? To somehow die sooner than you need to. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Back to sort of eking out another moment, live another moment, another moment until you can't, until you actually can't. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's that, you know, Shakespeare, Julius Caesar 101, right? I mean, a coward dies a thousand deaths in the valiant, but one. Yeah. Well, BJ, my man, thank you. Um, mm. this, this has been a beautiful exploration. Um, and I'm super grateful for, yeah, just basically your, your, your heart and your voice, um, mm. what you, what you bear witness to mm. in your own life and work. Um, it's, it's beautiful and, and needed. This podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease, or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. 
Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.